Thank you for downloading this episode of the Cast Iron Theatre Podcast. This is episode 10, which was recorded in the another suite venues, uh, the suite jukebox. So there's a bit of exterior noise, but that adds to the ambiance, I feel. In this episode, we are talking to Tom Letter from Sheer Drop Theatre. Yeah, we're chatting about uh, Wet Bread, which is the name of their Brighton Fringe uh, production. It was extra special for us this week, wasn't it? Because we got to meet... We got to meet the third member of uh, Sheer Drop, because obviously uh, Tom and Morag are are the centre of um, Sheer Drop, but there's, there's a, a third company member. Verity. And Verity is not quite two. Yes, they're and already uh, the, the, the main director. She was very insistent on introducing us to Horsey, who is her plastic horse. Oh, so, is that who that was? Yeah. And also, uh, at some point, about 10 minutes into the podcast, she actually was playing with um, those little wrappers that you have for the, the children's snack, um, which seemed adorable at the time, but I completely forgot to realise that that might make a difference on the microphone. So, Well, we're just explaining this, aren't we, in terms of if people who are listening get a bit confused uh, that we've set ourselves on fire or something. Yeah, it does sound like crackling fire sound, but it, it's not. It does stop. It's about, it's maybe four minutes yeah, of le- crackling less, sound. Yeah. yeah. If, if nothing else, Verity's got a, a great career ahead of her as a Foley artist. <laughs> yes. We hope you enjoy the episode. Have <laughs> fun. Bye-bye. This is episode 10 of the Cast Iron Theatre podcast. We recorded at the Sweet Duke Box, which is at the uh, back of the Southern Bell pub on Waterloo Street. And we're now on day five of the Brighton Fringe. Uh, hello, Tom. How are you? Hello, very well, thank you. Yes. Welcome to Brighton. How have you found it so far? Yeah, great. Uh, a lovely walk across the seafront to get here, and um, it's uh, it's great to be here for the Fringe. So, so you're not actually a local boy. Where, where are you normally? No, I'm uh, based up in up in London normally, um, so just down for, for this week of the Fringe to um, to do our show. Um, Sheer Drop, your, your theatre company, that's based in where in London? We're up in Walthamstow, uh, up in London. Um, there's... Well, I say two of us, three of us in the company. Um, there's myself and uh, and Morag Sims, and our uh, assistant director um, and producer Verity, who's nearly two, and is <laughs> here with us at the moment. So um, she may well contribute to this uh, to this podcast in her own unique fashion. Hello, Verity. How are you? Verity is, is currently introducing our microphone to a horsey. Horsey. That's the horsey. Fantastic. Brilliant. That's uh, good. Horsey. Now, Verity, you're going to be the most coherent contributor we've had to the podcast thus far. I think nobody who's chatted yet is going to be insulted by that <laughs> description. So talk to me about what, uh, what Sheer Drop is, what, what, it, what sure. what's intention is. So the, we're a, a new writing theatre company, um, specifically working with, with British playwrights at an early-ish stage of their careers. This is kind of yeah. one of our... Uh, key principles. Um, we tend to do about one show a year, mostly in London, but uh, but also working on the odd kind of community theatre project up in uh, up in Essex. When we do uh, when you do one show a year, is that an hour or um, or there's no particular? Yeah, normally something like that. I mean, it depends. We've done a few different things, like we've co-produced with Theatre Five Hundred Three um, uh, on Valhalla, which was an award-winning play. Uh, with Wet Bread, we developed that last year, and now doing that this year at the Fringe. Yeah. Um, and then we've also done a few other kind of gigs up at uh, Saffron Walden. They do a, 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 
a regular or well, three three yearly th- uh, kind of arts and culture festival up there that we've been a part of three or four times. So, um, and that tends to be again a piece of new writing, often with. Uh, community playwrights rather than a kind of professional playwright as such so we work with both professional playwrights and also people who just want to give playwriting a go who maybe haven't done that before so so that uh, quite literally nurturing new talent absolutely and and a big part of that for us is uh is running workshops as well as doing productions that's how we met tom glover who wrote uh wet bread actually we he came along to one of our weekend workshops and um brought one of his his plays along to that so Um, we offer we've, we've done several workshops from kind of very basic introduction to playwriting yeah. through to more uh, kind of dramaturgical advanced skills in terms of people bringing their plays to us and us workshopping them in the room yes. so um, a range of things to offer something back to writers who, yeah. are, who are as I say at an early stage of their career and often really benefit from um, from that input from a group of people so playwrights who are in an early stage of their career might be confused about exactly what a writing workshop entails. They might have this vision of it's just seven people awkwardly writing on paper for two hours. Hmm. Is that what a writing workshop is for I mean, what, for, for us, it's about um, really getting to know those individual writers. We keep the numbers of writers in the room really quite small yeah. so that we can, over the course of a, of a whole day or half a day, really get to know them. We've done several different versions of that. Sometimes we... We do a workshop with actors in the room, so yeah. we we are reading sections of, of a person's play out, and through those examples, imparting a few kind of general tips and tricks about what it's like to be at a redraft stage, for example. Yeah. So, um, whereas the introductory playwriting course tends to be more, I guess, me doing quite a bit of talking, but also getting the, the, the writers sure. to talk to each other about where they get their ideas from, how they turn their ideas in, in their heads into something on paper that will eventually go onto the stage. Um, and so with that, that's more of a kind of a step-by-step through some... I don't like to be too scientific or kind no. of... Uh, as we know, there's no there's no single way of writing a play. Yes. It's more about putting things in a writer's toolbox that they can use or yeah. not use depending on what's, what's best. And that tends to be much more exercise-based than just kind of theory. Of course, you yeah, suck it and see and try out new things. Exactly. Um, now entirely ignoring that point uh, what makes a good story or what makes a good play yeah it's a good question um, one of, in fact I might answer that through th- talking about something that we do in some of our workshops about looking at the kind of the uh, certain story types and universal sure. plot that kind of thing and just, just doing an exercise on understanding what that fundamental universal plot storyline is of, of a person setting on, set on a journey with um, uh, some form of antagonistic thing to overcome and eventually by the end of that they've they've changed in some way and are able to conquer those antagonistic forces. So there's yeah. a very, 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 very basic simplistic yes. kind of plot that, that underpins almost every story. And the reason that I like to go there with writers when they're first starting out is to know what an audience's subliminal expectations of story are. Yeah. The reason that every action movie is basically the same storyline, every Bond movie is basically the same storyline, is that there's a certain kind of central story arc, if you like, that satisfies us. It, it, it's uh, delivered on your promise, isn't it? It's a Chekhov's gun sort of concept. There, yeah, yeah, definitely. And then within that, you break that down into some of your key um, your key types of stories, your kind of monster story, or yeah. your love story, or your um, uh, rags-to-riches story. Yeah. So thinking about what some of those classic story types are I think can be quite helpful especially for playwrights for whom 
a big part of their work now in this, you know, in 2017, is to break form and to play around with um, uh, different kind of forms of narrative that don't necessarily fit a linear passage of time. It's interesting that you say 2017, because uh, that's not just about the fact that we happen to be, that's the present, it's also, this is quite an interesting year, mm. and, and story is about response. Absolutely, about yeah. And so... I know, right? So, mm. and story is response. It's opinion. Mm. Um, so, let's go to the hackneyed, cliched question: Is theatre going to get really good and interesting over the next couple of years? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting. Well, I had this discussion with someone recently about. Um, I'm a big believer in the power of theatre to make people's kind of uh, perspectives on the world change. But I, I no longer think that theatre can create what it used to, which is that kind of seismic cultural shift with a single production. Yes. Think of the riots at opening nights of Chekhov plays and things yeah. like that. I'm not sure that, 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 that that's theatre's... that a single piece of theatre has that capacity to be that seismic yes. anymore. Um, but nonetheless, if we can respond to what's happening in the world with a sense of humour and insight and passion and all those other things that drive us for making theatre because goodness knows we wouldn't be in it for the money no. um, then uh, then we can hopefully say something at least either entertaining or thought-provoking or both about where the world is now uh, and even if that's to 50 people above a pub yes. those 50 people have a formative transformative experience if you find a way of doing your work that, that, that makes you um, transformed in making it well, here's the thing. You, you're, you're talking about being transforming. You're talking about change, and I'm, I'm getting the impression this is somewhat what wet bread is actually about and about to attack. Is isn't theatre really qu- quite one of the most significant echo chambers we're likely to have? <laughs> that, that is very true. And, and I think also when I, when I talk about something being transformative, I think that can sound quite high and mighty. But yeah. but in, in many ways, one of the most transformative things you can do in in theatre is make people laugh. And I think that sort of satire um, is a hugely powerful weapon. And that's where Wet Bread comes in, is this, this attempt to look at... Well, it was initially inspired by the aftermath of the, the 2015 general election. Yes. And looking at satirising the... I guess, some, well, the, probably one way I think about it is satirising the worst ways that a person on the left responded to that. It's an attack on self, isn't it? It is a little bit, yeah. It's, it's very self, very introspective to those of us who, who might be on... I mean, I'm, I'm making presumptions, of course. Of course. But, um, but in, in general, the kind of the theatre community would look at themselves on the left. And a lot of political theatre tends to therefore attack the right. And yeah. what, I, what we wanted to... What angered us in the aftermath of 2015 was the, the amount of... Um, kind of vitriol that was slung around from the left towards the right yes and rather than just just the the argument being they're worse than us so you should vote for us yeah. or we're morally right and they are selfish all those kind of very simplistic yes. dichotomies that we often apply to left Daddy. versus right why not look at the way the left behaves that is not necessarily um helpful to its own cause yeah because not necessarily about being kind of left bashing but it is about being critical of a certain attitude that seemed to pervade a kind of moral righteousness a sense of hypocrisy a sense of um i guess the the one of the key hypocrisies that really inspired me wanting to create this show yeah apples was uh, not apples and oranges <laughs> but um was uh was that kind of we are the tolerant side of the equation yeah and that kind of 
professing to be tolerant and then being incredibly intolerant of those that disagreed with you is a really interesting place that I find a lot of people on the left seem to found themselves. You hear on that Tory scum and, the, yeah. and that, kind of, that kind of language. I don't see it being helpful to the debate. No. Um, I, I think uh, we've spoken about echo chambers, but uh, social media has not been our friend in that regard. Indeed. We've been very quick to criticise opposing sides. But this is a conversation that's coming up in Cast Iron Theatre a lot. Michelle and I have been chatting about this a lot recently. Because theatre is generally the home of a left-wing belief. Cinema, arguably so. Uh, uh, could you... I haven't, prepped, I haven't prepped you for this question at all. Could you point to uh, an example of right-wing theatre? Uh, I have to... I can't, off the top of my head, no, think of examples. Because whether it's the theatre makers or filmmakers or those that are backing those theatre makers in terms of venues yeah. or film companies or producers... Um, it's uh, maybe there's in terms of outwardly kind of overtly political theatre uh, or or cinema. Um, it seems to there's a there's a desire to make a story about the underdog. I yes. think. Yes. Uh, but no, it's, like it's, David Hare, who who is probably more at least centre than left, mm. but certainly not actively left. No. Yeah. It's. Uh, it's difficult. I, in fact, what I would love to—I I would love there to be um, a, a significant kind of theatre maker or, or filmmaker who came out, almost came out <laughs> in that kind of sense, <laughs> yeah. of saying, you know, I'm—I'm I'm a conservative. I yes. vote—I vote this way, and I do that because of these reasons. Yeah. It doesn't make me a bad person or a um, or a bad storyteller. No. Um, or not able to to make insightful film or cinema or, 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 or theatre. But I think. Again, there's that, there's that kind of culture of judgment. And it's judgment, as you were alluding to a moment ago, uh, there are two groups of people who are very good at attacking the left. Uh, that being the right are very good at attacking the left, and now increasingly the left are very good at attacking the left. Yeah. And so at least the, the, uh, the right wing uh, elements of government or society will have at times the absolute belief that they are right. Uh, in both senses of the term. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's um, that's important when we talk about right and left is make a distinction is between um, a kind of a, an approach to social f- issues and social policy and approach to economic yeah. um, ideas. Now, I'm no pol- I'm no politician. I know I, I haven't studied policy or anything like that. But just from observing stuff, we're very quick to assume that somebody who believes in a conservatism economically also believes in certain conservative social values. Yes. Whereas actually I think there's a whole swathe of people who keep quiet about the fact that they believe um, in a certain conservatism of an economic nature, Yes. but actually are socially liberal and socially very much about inclusivity, um, uh, opportunity for all, and, uh, and, and those kind of things that I think the left like to think are their values. Yes. So another thing that the left does in attacking the right, contrary to its own um, kind of downfall, is, it, is it, it loses lots of potential allies. Yeah. Potential people who, who are actually, in the vast um, number of kind of issues that they care about, such as homelessness or um, uh, equality or human rights or whatever, on the same page as those on the left. They just happen yeah. to believe economically there's a different way towards that, sure. that, that world. 
And this is in in part what uh, wet bread is is discussing. Yeah. So let, let's talk about that specifically. Uh, w- what is the plot? What, what's uh, what's our way into wet bread? So the, the central character is Adele, who is a left wing activist. Um, and in the aftermath of the twenty fifteen general election, she uh, she's initially obviously hugely distraught by that. Um, she goes into the election thinking that Labour are definitely going to win because everyone she knows votes Labour. Yes. So that kind of echo chamber thing is the, is where we start really with the with peace. Um, she sets. She decides through a challenge from her closest friend to um, to spend a year campaigning um, to, so that she can prove that her activism does change the world for the yes. better. One person can make a difference. And she tries to do this with a, with a number of large scale projects like protests and smaller scale things like welcoming in a, a homeless man to live with her for a yes. period of time. And all of her attempts, for some or other reason, fail on yeah. some level. Um, through through the play, you know this this means we've got a range of these other characters that are all played by the same performer. Yes. Um, but Adele is the, is, the, is the kind of the, the the central one all the way through it, and we see that her her um, I guess ideological position at the start softens and tempers itself in the course of the play. She learns from her mistakes up to a point and gets to a point of going actually you know what maybe we can make we can do good in quieter ways yes. rather than it being having to get the megaphone out <laughs> at every at every port and also port. that that alludes to the the ex-politicians line of they can do a lot m- much better work outside of politics mm. um, so in the last couple of weeks in the last two weeks uh, the 2017 general election has been called which I have to say Share drop as advertising campaigns go. That's a belter. Yeah, we got we got in a sense we were one of the very few people on the left of this country who were quite <laughs> happy that that Theresa May called the general election. Yeah, if only to get a few more bums on the seats yeah. in a very crude way. But but it does it does give this play a new perspective. Um, and uh, you know, looking at the aftermath of the last election, just on the eve of the next one, I think is a really interesting accident uh, for us. But. But it'll be interesting to see what the audience response is to, because ine- yeah. inevitably it puts our audience in a very different place. And you and I are speaking on the morning, although it's yet to be actually confirmed, but it's a foregone conclusion of the uh, French election. Yes, indeed, indeed, yeah. Which is, um, I'm not, again, not, I don't beyond reading a few BBC news articles. I'm not a huge in- expert on the the situation in France, but at least we can see that um, what we would consider potentially that more extreme viewpoint has lost. Yes. Um, nonetheless, it still was popular enough to get through to the final two runoff, and still got over a third of the, the the cast votes. So that that in itself means that we might have a, a kind of centrist left candidate there. Um, there. Um, but it shows that we were in quite a divisive age politically. Absolutely. Um, and part of satirising satirising that, I think. I like to hope on a very some on some small level might help people look across that divide and work hard to find what is still common ground. That's why it's called wet bread. Yes. Everybody can agree that if you spill water on a sandwich and it makes it all soggy, it's yes. horrible. Yeah. So we can remember that <laughs> we hold on to the idea that there's at least something that we can all agree on. So, so something that we uh, we can share as audience members. Yeah, exactly. And and we didn't want to be too high and mighty and talk about it being our kind of shared humanity. Yeah. The idea that something is as kind of 
as simple as, as a bit of soggy bread, but but it's still the point stands, you know. Rather than judging those who disagree with us, why don't we start from a point of common ground and then go from there? That doesn't mean you don't get passionate about your no. beliefs. You don't mean doesn't mean you don't keep fighting on some level, but you fight with love rather than with a megaphone. So you use the term uh, satire. Is that what wet bread is? Is it is is that usefully labelled satire? That's the way we've been describing it. Yeah. Um, it's probably down to an audience to judge whether it's uh, um, satire. I, I guess the, th- the difficulty with making satire nowadays is that it very quickly becomes what actually happens in the real world. You look at some things like uh, Yes Minister or even more recently The Thick of It as yes. political satires and within a couple of years the things they're satirising have gone more f- to a further extreme than the satire was a yeah. few years before. So, um, But yeah, I mean... I, I, I guess satire is the easiest way of describing it, if only because um, we do take things to extreme for comedic value, but there is a there is a truthful point beneath that to be made. And you're opening, the, the, the writer or the performer is opening themselves up, they're examining something, mm. they're either angry about it or they're, they're striving to understand it, because arguably, through certainly people who are generally in the theatre world or whatever, the 2015 general election and by extension Brexit and by extension the US election didn't that's not how that narrative was expected to end no no and and part of that that unexpected outcomes of those elections I think is um, the echo chamber thing of not of, of, of going well we must be right because everyone around us tells exactly, us we are yeah. uh, and, we forget, and that... we forget that there's there's a much broader much more complex world out there and a complex world full of people who, who um, aren't all, by any means, bigoted or selfish or whatever. Um, there are people out there who vote differently because their interests, their values and the things at stake for them are very, very different. Yeah. And if we don't work hard to acknowledge that, to look at those people honestly to understand their position as, as, uh, from their perspective as much as possible, how can we ever engage them? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, there was a... I, I saw somebody post um, the EU referendum describe Brexiters as, oh, uh, in the North as, oh, well, they're all peasants. And I think that's such a... Such a... Uh, it's, a completely, it's, a, it's a completely unhelpful way of looking yeah. at it. You might have massive disagreements with the way they vote or why they voted, and I'm not saying that there were um, that uh, that there weren't those in that election who did vote with a sense of hate or whatever in, yeah. their, in their hearts, first and foremost, or that they were duped by the lies and all that kind of stuff. But to to block everybody just because they disagree with you on one bit of ballot paper into one camp as being peasants, yes. I think is how are you ever going to get their 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 vote if you don't actually try and understand it from their point of view? I think it's a sobering moment for any sort of theatre maker or whatever to uh, d- uh, to remember or be reminded that, for instance, The Guardian is you know, one of the lowest selling newspapers. N- nobody's reading The Guardian. Mm. And many, many people are reading The Sun. And it must be sobering for liberals, for want of a better word, to realise that they may well be in the minority. Well, that, that, is, that is tricky. And part of the argument as well is about the left, to get its message out there, is much harder than the right, because sure. the, on the whole... Um, there's more right-wing media than left-wing yeah, media. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when we were talking about theatre and cinema earlier, if you broaden out to the rest of media, then you're thinking we are primarily a right-wing absolutely. press yeah. in this country in terms of the, the, its popularity. So there is a diff- there is a harder journey of the left getting its message out there. Um, 
maybe through satire and laughter and comedy that still has a point maybe that's one way of cutting through some of that stuff and that's the important thing about wet bread is that it's not it's not a lecture or um... well, no it's 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 got to entertain first and yeah. foremost like if we if, in an hour of of uh, um in an hour long show we're aiming to make people laugh dozens of times yeah um there's also heart in the story you know it's not just about the big political kind of lofty ideas there's also stuff about a human being and how they connect to another human being so we see Adele with her best friend and that friendship go through um, trials and tribulations with her mother who's very ill and the difficulties there we see her try uh, fall in love and not know how to deal with that yeah um, because she lives her life by her principles so much that there isn't the space really to not be political sure. at every turn and that gets in the way of some of her, her personal relationships so we see there's there's real heart to it as well and we're hoping that we can make people laugh and then think and maybe cry by the end Excellent uh, so, uh, Adele is played by Morag who's having a bit busy week this week She is yes as well as doing doing um, Wet Bread uh, down at Brighton she's involved in a very different type of show um She's playing Anne Boleyn in a production at Hampton Court Palace called Power Play, which runs during the days. So um, uh, Thursday to Sunday, she'll be doing two shows uh, a day up in Hampton Court and then uh, running down to Brighton. Well, not running, unless the trains are really screwed up. Well, yeah. Um, and then uh, doing wet bread in the evening. So it's going to be quite an intense week for her. And Adele is a somewhat less, um, in many respects, a somewhat less... Um Corseted character. <laughs> yes, indeed. She's she's certainly um, certainly certainly a shrinking violet. What Morag also does it. She she plays all the other characters in the show, and her yeah. her um, kind of ability to give all of those characters both um, a real truthful life, but also to find the satire by taking those things to it to their comedic extremes. I think is is really remarkable, and it's it was part of the um, the way that we developed the show with Tom Glover, the writer. The three of us just started off by sitting in a room going, we have a complete blank slate, we know we want to do a one-person show, what do we What do? We do? Here's the thing, with, the, with those uh, multitude of characters played by the one actor, um, that can be a difficult way in of mm. how pantomime that becomes. It can, absolutely, and that is one of the risks of the show. Yeah. And whenever I talk about it uh, as a, a, a one-person show written in dialogue, I know that the first thing that might flash in people's heads is a really, really eggy, crappy kind of version where a person is kind of switching position every line and da 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 Um, I hope that when people come and see this they realise that we've managed to, I think find a style of performance in that form, that down to how brilliant Morag is in terms of her character, but that um, that makes it both very clear and followable as a story but doesn't feel like it's just one person showing off yeah, um, and showing off badly at, at, at that it's about finding the truth of that so I hope that we've kind of cracked that one but it will, the proof will be in the pudding and, and what audience's response to that is and indeed because of uh, she's playing multiple characters there's certain avenues certain elements that you're not able to do the, the, mm. the restrictions uh, I, I, I guess I'm loading the question here because I think I know some of the answer is that quite exciting to have those restrictions placed on you absolutely I found as a director actually it's, it's, it's been a very different type of um, process and, and approach because as a director of a if you like a conventional play with more than one person yeah. in it 
a major part of your job, I think, is to get actors to a point where they can really be listening and reactive in the moment. Yeah. And for all of the preparation and rehearsal that you do, it's about getting them to a point where they are alive there. And listening is a huge important part of that. Yeah. And therefore, if an actor that they're in a scene with um, trusts their instincts and does something a little bit differently than the actor is responding to it, if they're properly there and listening, yeah. will find something new as well. And that, that's the kind of theatre that I like to make as a director as a whole, that feels alive rather than rehearsed and then presented. Sure. But that's hard to do when you've only got one person talking to and listening to themselves. Well, that, that's the real key point. You think, I found that with solo theatre is that that rule doesn't go away. You still no. need to listen. And you've got to listen to the audience. I mean, one of the other, the, because this is entirely in dialogue, there's no direct address to an audience like you would have in yeah. maybe a more, in a, in a more conventional one-person show, yeah. albeit even, even if a kind of multi-character thing, there's a certain, um, a lot of those shows have a convention of audience interaction or at least audience kind of uh, bouncing off an audience. Whereas this is kind of, it's one. It's a one-person fourth-wall drama yeah. comedy, which is quite an unusual thing. And it, as I say, it's a slight experiment. We 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 did a kind of scratch version of the show last year that that was very well responded to by the audience there. So hopefully that's a good kind of test for for Brighton. Yeah. Um, but we'll see what happens and what the audience response is down in, down in Brighton. And you know what it's like when you're making theatre. <laughs> if you if you make theatre again, it's a bit it's a bit like the echo chamber in miniature. It yeah. can be. You make theatre in a small bubble and then you put it in front of a whole bunch of other people and and only then do you really understand what you've made. So when is our small bubble bubble going to pop? So the pot. It pops tomorrow night. That's uh, on Tuesday, the 9th of May, at 7:40 p.m. at uh, Sweet Waterfront, at the Jury's Inn Waterfront um, Hotel. So that's yeah. And then we run from Tuesday through to Sunday this week. So six performances, all at 7:40. Uh, it's just an hour long, and it yeah. should be should be hopefully really really good fun. What we really want is for people from all as- all sides of the political spectrum to be there. Now. Yeah. In Brighton, we might get more on the left than the right. But you might have Caroline Lucas. You, she, she often comes to a performance at the Sweetwaterfront. Because that would be brilliant. I mean, and that being able to um, motivate a conversation after the show as well would be really, really great. Um, this wasn't a conversation at the time of the last uh, election. Um, would th- and this may well be a plot reveal that you don't want to give away if it ever comes up in the plot. Would Morag be up for her? MP standing down in the hope of cross-party pollination. Yeah, it doesn't really come up in the play as such, but um, I think that's quite a tricky one because one of the one of the tricky things with the play is we created it started kind of thinking about it about eighteen months ago, and because so much has changed so quickly, <laughs> that my one worry is that that come is ju- June documents? the eighth we're out of it. We, we we are kind of already old news which yeah. can happen when you're making political theatre or, or even satire like I was yeah. saying earlier um, you, you think you're satirising something that's actually what's happening I I still think that there is that there is a bigger uh, a bigger point that pervades beyond the fact that we're about to have another general election yeah exactly how Adele would um, uh, would be approaching now is difficult to say um of course, she's incredibly pro-Corbyn to begin with, but yes. uh, inevitably because of her own approach to working with other people, she very quickly falls out of love with the Labour Party, or they yeah. fall out of love with her. So um, she is... Uh, if she was standing in the election, she would definitely be an independent. I see. Um, 
so you, you're you've come out to Brighton at the weekend. Uh, normally, what we ask uh, our people on the podcast is well, where they would te- hang, tend to hang out and we to like yeah. spend on a notepad, which you may not be so familiar. No, but with. I had I had a day down in Brighton last week, which was lovely, um, and uh, if only because it was the one place that I properly hung out uh, here. The the Breakfast Club um, oh, yes. was I went for for lunch there last week. And that was lovely, really, really lovely. Yeah. So uh, that would be my answer, Excellent. The Breakfast Club. And the other uh, questions we tend to ask is, um, is it a film you've recently seen or a programme you're uh, binge-watching at the moment or a book you're reading that we should really get a hold of? Oh, um, very good question. Um, uh, in terms of just a book, if, if only for um, a bit of, I say escapism, it's a beautiful piece of writing. The Buried Giant by Kazuri Shiguro I read recently. Um, I would highly recommend that. It's got a kind of mythical quality to it. Um, so, uh, so, so that's a good one. Um, at the moment, all of my uh, kind of cultural consuming has involved children's television programs. Yes. Um, but actually, there's a. There's a <laughs> my wife will be will, will laugh. I say this. I would strongly recommend everybody of all ages to watch a, a TV program called Sarah and Duck. It's a it's a brilliant example of short seven minute surreal comedy storytelling about friendship between a, a, a young girl and her and her duck. Um, it's a bit bizarre. It's voiced by Roger Allen, but I've been watching quite a lot of it with with uh, with Verity, our nearly two year old. Um, and actually, the more I watch it, the more I enjoy it and recognise that there's so much in there for adults as well. So if we feel like the world is a bit too complex, a bit too scary, sit down and watch a seven-minute episode of Sarah and Dark and it might make you feel better. And I've suddenly worked out very recently, I haven't seen Sarah and Duck, but I imagine that that bizarrely has some sort of political influence because I only worked out this morning that Roger Allen and John Sargent have the same voice. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's... Um, uh, it's interesting as well when, when you when you have a a, a a toddler, inevitably, and especially for for me, I spend a lot of time with Variety. I'm very fortunate as a father to have that. Yeah. Um, and raising a girl in this world, you can't help but see kind of politics and identity politics course, everywhere. Yeah. And even in something like a TV show, I find myself watching a TV show and going, "Well, that's sexist." Yeah. And of course. That's kind of both both a little bit sad because it takes you out of just enjoying the story, but also quite important to be able to go, actually, I don't agree, I don't necessarily think those values are what I want my child to be consuming. Well, it starts out even from little t-shirts for uh, toddlers, or mm. you have for boys, you have um, dinosaur, or builder, or yeah. whatever, and uh, for girls it tends to be wordless, which is quite an, a non-benign political point, yeah. literally being silent, or princess or whatever. Yeah, it's so really, even yeah. Um, so we spoke about uh, um, oh this is a one that we haven't prepped you for at all which you may not have an answer for because I've very much not prepped you for it <laughs> what are the great political plays or political films oh goodness that is, <laughs> that is tricky I mean one of my favourite pieces of work that I think is intensely political um, is Far Away by Carol Churchill yeah. that because it's got a, it's a very sparse uh <laughs> very kind of formally different type of story um, incredibly difficult to, to, to do a very good production of I think but, yeah. but but if you dig inside it it's really really it's really amazing and it's um, the reason it's it's a brilliant political message is that um, for those that don't know it it's a very simple setup it just takes place over three acts very short acts with big time gaps between them 
and in the first act we see a, a, a young girl turn a blind eye to a to a, a, an example of something horrible happening yeah. in the world and by the end of the play it's a, it's kind of post-apocalyptic nightmare world which on yeah. some level has been has started when she was a little girl and that that idea that we that, that if we turn our eyes away from the things that we really shouldn't be ignoring um, before long it can completely get out of our hands I think it's a very important political message it's yeah. basically saying care about your world yeah. and do what you can to, to make it just a little bit better yeah. one bit at a time well, the other question we often ask is uh, did you have an idea for a play or an idea for an invention when you were younger that somebody else got to first oh that's a good one um Actually, yes, there is a, something that, that, that I saw recently that, that reminded me that when I was, um, I must have been a teenager or something, I had this, what I thought at the time was a brilliant idea of, of a thing called a sleep shop, which was just somewhere on the high street or in the city somewhere, that you could just go in and book half an hour's sleep yeah. or an hour's sleep or, you know, for, for people busy around the day or on their lunch break wanting to have a nap or whatever. Yeah. And I thought, this is a brilliant idea. And yes. I was saying to my best friend, and he was like, Tom, that's, that's rubbish. What are you talking about? Yeah. No one would go for that. But I just saw recently, I think it's happening in Brighton, there's a thing called uh, napper size or something like that, like nap exercise. <laughs> um, I think it, it's aimed at parents of, of, of youngsters. And the idea is that you go in and you all get in kind of beds in a big room and have a nap with music and kind of other things happening to help you get a restorative hour in the middle of the day. So, yeah, I, I still think that, that if I went out of theatre and I didn't do a second-hand bookshop, which is my second kind of yeah, yeah. Um, uh, vocation, if I wanted it, it would be um, to set up sleep shop and to have little sleep shops on high streets all around the country um, offering people a chance to have a mid-afternoon nap. I'm a big... Um, I'm a big believer in napping. I, I take every opportunity whenever Verity is napping in the middle of the day to have yes. a nap myself. It's, yeah. a, it's a brilliant thing. But I think, yeah, that will probably be it. We, we should probably schedule a nap uh, in the next few minutes. But, <laughs> but, but I'm going to ask one more question. Because uh, um, Sheardrop uh, provides a script reading service. Yes. Um, and sort of for various prices and for various lengths of script, people can send in their script and have feedback. This is an unrelated but connected question. Uh, what's going to grab one's attention or make, give you pause in the mm. first five pages? I think the thing that grabs me most and the thing that I have seen playwrights just starting out um, uh, not so easily capture is a sense of mystery and tension. Often in the first few minutes of a script, people... Uh, you know, early career playwrights or whoever's writing wants there to be a lot of information in that. I think focus on setting up a sense of mystery and tension in the first five minutes of a of a, of a play is much more likely to 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 draw me and therefore hopefully an, an audience in. Verity is ready for the beach. Um, so, yeah, equally, you don't want to be uh, circling the plot no, too much. No, it's, 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 it's got to be active. It's got to be. You've got to, and that's another reason to to think about mystery and tension rather than information. Yeah. Is because. Um, characters doing stuff to each other subtly or without being too direct is very active and therefore yes. we're engaged in a story yeah. characters telling sharing information with each other and by extension the audience is has no dramatic action no. behind it so that's the thing I, I, I would worry less about an audience um getting it and worry more about an audience feeling it in the early stages of a play how many scripts have you read where there's lots of discussion about offers of cups of tea yeah there's I think people like Pinter, uh, Pinter's got a lot to answer for. <laughs> Anybody who, who um, describes their work 
this is a personal taste thing. Yes. Who starts by describing their work as Pinteresque? I, I, I have a slight kind of um, bite at the back of my teeth sense of despair about what that's going to be when I get to read sure. it. Um, if only because that idea that you can, that nothing can happen and that's good theatre, yeah. I think is a bit of a, sh- a bit of a bit of a problem. But listen, the man single-handedly revived the olives um, industry. <laughs> And for that, he should have credit. No, I'm a big. I mean, I'm not saying I'm. I'm not a big fan of Pinter's work. No. It's just um, uh, cheap imitations of that style, which don't understand the deep complexities of the kind of the the undercurrents of what's happening beneath yeah, what think, appears like quite simplistic or or empty dialogue. I think is and that, um, that's the, the point, isn't there? There's a, a gap. There's a difference between a pause that is loaded and is of itself actual dialogue. Yeah, and a bit where somebody stops speaking it for a moment until they start speaking again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a, it's about making it making it um as you say loaded and and understanding the the kind of that that these little moments every uh, hello. Let's remind ourselves once more when we are watching Wet Bread. Wet Bread uh, it's on at 7:40 p.m. from the 9th to the 14th of May. It's on a um sweet waterfront. Uh, the jury's in Waterfront Hotel on Kings Road in Brighton. Um, uh, it's about an hour long, and we'll be around uh, in the hotel lobby and bar afterwards for anybody who comes to see it who wants to say hi. You're literally inviting political conversations afterwards. I love. I, I would love to. I would love to. I mean, one of our one of our hopes with this show is to um, to go on a bit of a rural tour around um, the southeast or other areas to be able to take it out to areas that aren't. Um, naturally left-leaning perhaps because yes, I think there's something really ex- exciting about broadening the conversation to everybody on the political spectrum I would love there to be a massive political argument in the bar after one of our shows and I would just come along with a plate of wet bread and say remember the bread and Excellent. hope that they might then find a way of getting on fantastic so uh, on that heady diet of wet bread uh, Tom from Sheer Drop thank you very much thank you very much Andrew really, really enjoyed that fantastic This has been the Cast Iron Theatre Podcast, presented by me, Andrew Allen, edited by Michelle Donkin. Music is Chapstick by Everett Arnold. Find us on Twitter at cast underscore iron acts, on Facebook with ironclad cast iron, all one word, and our website is castironbrighton.weebly.com. Subscribe to us and rate us on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Hello, Verity. Your coat and hat on. Are you ready for the coat? She's got her own hat on. She won't coat. <laughs> <laughs> you are so ready to go. Coat. Yeah, d- yes, darling. You got your coat on. Uh oh.